Last week, I started the discussion of how we can responsibly remove graves and if the removal of graves is justified by larger social products. Talking about the Tennessee Valley Authority kicked off what I think is an interesting discussion about how cemeteries give us an idea of the sense of place. This week, I want to talk about cemetery context. And to use another example, I will be exploring the Quabbin Reservoir, which was built in the 1930s in Massachusetts, and look at how their way of dealing with cemeteries gives us insight both into the importance of cemeteries and learning about local history and how public projects can do so responsibly. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb with a View. So hopefully I didn't bore anybody too much last week. Uh, I know it was a very engineering-heavy episode, and there was maybe less discussion of cemeteries than you would like. Uh, But like I said, it was my birthday last week, and it's my podcast, so I can really do whatever I want uh, within reason. And this week I'm continuing it, and... Basically, since I started the podcast, I knew that the the Quabbin Reservoir was something I wanted to talk about, or Reservoir. Um, And I know I have actually mentioned it on the podcast before. Um, I've killed a lot of brain cells over the years. I can't always remember everything I say. Uh, At some point, I will have to go back and listen to two days worth of episodes. But... It's one of the few examples that I can think of where this particular approach was taken. And when I was in graduate school, I took a class on historic preservation law. And it was an online class. And I went to the professor. um, Her name is Connie Pinkerton uh, at SCAD. And she and I told her I wanted to cover cemetery law, cemetery preservation laws. And I know that I've mentioned on the podcast before that there is such a wide range. Almost every state is different. There are certain trends that you can trace. But so far as I know, even at this point, AGS has not really got a comprehensive list of every cemetery law because so many of them are not related to preservation or protecting cemeteries, but rather to regulations about you know, what permits you need to bury someone and things like that. They're more on the funeral home or business side as opposed to the actual cemetery itself and what governs it. Hopefully at some point in the future that will exist. And I know that there there is a big movement where we have people from different states who are trying to coalesce these things. That's not exactly what I want to talk about today, but one of the examples that I brought up was... Quabbin Park Cemetery, which I'll be talking about today. And I remember that when I handed this paper and she was very surprised by it. And she was also surprised by my criticism of it because theoretically within the law, they had done what they were supposed to do. But I brought up the issue of context. And that's really what I want to discuss today. To start off with, so As early as the mid-19th century, the city of Boston knew it was going to run out of water. And so they eventually started going further and further out. If you are familiar with the geography of Massachusetts, it's essentially a rectangular box with the curving arm of Cape Cod coming off it. And Boston is on the eastern end, on the ocean end of the state, 
kind of right smack in the middle, middle to upper half. And most of the water sources were located inland. And so throughout the late 19th century, they kept having to go further and further for water, building aqueducts and building reservoirs first in Wachusett and then continuing to go further west. And by essentially the turn of the century, I think around 1898, they knew that they were going to have to build a very large reservoir to serve the growing population of Boston. And so from that point onwards, they had their eye on a portion of land called the Swift River Valley. Now, the Swift River runs right through the center of Massachusetts, runs through all the way into Connecticut. Uh, And if you look at a map of Massachusetts today, right there in the middle, there's a huge body of water. You cannot miss it. Um, It's a long, skinny lake right in the middle, and that is the Quabbin Reservoir. That is eventually the solution to their problem. And they knew that this place was ideal because it was a natural valley that could be easily dammed up and turned into a reservoir, which had a large river running through it. Um, And interestingly enough, there's going to be a lawsuit over the rights to this water. Connecticut's essentially going to sue Massachusetts, and they lose it, but... Even then, this river is powerful enough that they can continue to have water running out. I believe it was something like 20 million gallons still needs to be the output per day, aside from what goes into the reservoir, in order to satisfy the water needs of Connecticut. So this was a powerful river, the Swift River, and they knew that this was probably going to be the solution to Boston's water problems. Now, Like with the TVA last week, this is something that comes to a head in the 1930s because this is an opportunity to put people back to work during the Great Depression. So the Quabbin Reservoir will be constructed between 1930 and 1939. It will employ between 3,000 and 5,000 employees, most of them not from the region, people who lived in greater Boston who were out of work and were trucked out there um they called them woodpeckers they were not well liked by the people in the valley they were working for 63 cents an hour but it was steady work and they were being fed and it was a huge huge project for putting people back to work during the great depression and the end result was going to be a very big payoff um the Quabbin Reservoir today supplies water to Boston and 40 other communities around it. Um, and keep in mind that this is pretty far away. It's about 65 miles from Boston. It's west of Boston in the center of the state. Um, so it's through a series of aqueducts that this water gets to Boston. They also supply a couple towns to the west of the reservoir as well. I think there's three. So that's essentially about 40% of the state of Massachusetts gets their water from this one source. Um, That's about 2.5 million people. And this is a huge reservoir. It holds 412 billion gallons and covers 38.6 square miles, which, if you do the conversion, is about 40,000 acres. So it's huge. It's enormous. Like I said, it's very easy to pick out if you look at a map of Massachusetts. You cannot miss the Quabbin Reservoir. It's right there, smack dab in the middle. It's governed by two authorities. Uh, The Massachusetts Water Resources Authority handles the water supply end. And then the watershed surrounding it is 
governed by the Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation. When in my former life I used to be a teacher, I actually used to use the Quabbin as a good example when I taught units on watersheds. Um, that was mainly towards the latter end of my career. I used to teach watersheds. I think it was in eighth grade. Uh, the kids hated it. It was their least favorite uh, section of the book that we did. But watersheds are hard for people to understand. But the watershed, for example, for the Quabbin Reservoir, which is one of the largest unfiltered water supplies in the United States. Uh, I was very surprised when I came to Georgia and I found out that Lake Lanier, um, which supplies the majority of the water for Metro Atlanta, is a recreation spot and people go swimming and motorboating and there are resorts along Lake Lanier because up in Massachusetts where I'd come from, you know, you virtually cannot do anything at the club and you cannot swim there. There are no areas, even generally where you can launch your own boat. You have to rent boats on the lake because they're trying to stop invasive species from getting into the water. So it was very, a very big switch to me, but also they want the club to be unfiltered. That's a big part of it. And that was one of the things that the metropolitan water back in the 19th century had decided. Um, they had certain standards for their water. So the watershed around the Quabbin is huge. And that's important to remember because when we talk about cemeteries, that's one of the reason that as many cemeteries were moved. Because there is a huge open area around the reservoir, which is not underwater, but was still taken because that prevents runoff of bad things from getting into the water and keeps the water supply pure. It's the simplest way to explain it. Um, it's contained by the Windsor Dam, uh, which the Windsor Dam is 2,600 feet long, 170 feet high, and it's named after Frank E. Windsor, who was the chief engineer of the Metropolitan Water Supply from 1926 until his death in 1939. And then at the other end is the Goodnow Dyke. Um, I have walked across both of them. Um, the Goodnow Dyke, you have to travel a little bit further out. You have to do a little bit more hiking to get to. Um, but the Windsor Dam, if you go into just like the main part, of the Quabbin right where the visitor center is and everything like it's right there and you can walk across it I, you can ride your bike across it any of those things so that gives you a little bit of the history now the number one thing <laughs> that I have been asked about things like this and people ask me particularly about cemeteries is when they build these things all the cemeteries are underwater right and this is a misconception that I don't judge anybody for having because I can very distinctively remember as a child, there was a reservoir in our town, the Diamond Hill Reservoir, where I grew up in Cumberland, Rhode Island. And I can remember driving with my father along one of the roads next to the reservoir and him saying, oh, you know, it hasn't rained in a long time. You can see how low the water is. You know, if the water gets much lower, you're going to see all of the houses that are under the reservoir. And I don't remember it being like something where he was joking or trying to scare me as a kid. This perception happens all the time where people will say, oh, yeah, if the water gets low, you can see the top of the church steeples or, you know, the water gets low enough, you can see certain things. Now, I'm not saying that this never happens, but it is very unlikely. Um, 
Lake Lanier, for example, I know that they did take over like a motor speedway and you can still see the stands, which are partially covered. When the water level drops, you can still see them. Very often roads do remain underneath the water. But for the most part, in order to keep your water supply pure, you need to remove buildings. And that's because the more things that you have underwater, the more places there are for algae to grow. Also, keep in mind, prior to the 1930s, the majority of houses are going to be built of wood. So as wood rots, that's going to pollute the water. You don't want all of that underwater. You want to try to get as much out as you can. It's the same way that they don't leave trees underwater. They clear cut the trees. The valley burned for years before they actually started to fill it up with water. And they did this purposely to eliminate as much of the organic matter as they could to try to keep that water supply pure. And that is what is true of the majority of reservoirs. I'm not saying that there's nothing left. Um, and I will link up a video where if you are really curious, um, the University of Massachusetts, which is not too far from the Coopan Reservoir, back in the late 90s, took underwater cameras and actually explored underwater at the Coopan. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But you can actually see it. And I used to show it to my kids. It was the least favorite video of the year. Um, but it gives you an idea. So they don't pull everything out, but the majority of it does come out. The Swift River Valley, aside from being eyed as a location for this reservoir, was a thriving place. There were four towns which were disincorporated and flooded as part of the construction of the Quabbin Reservoir. Dana, Enfield, Greenwich, and Prescott. Now, of these... Two of them, Enfield and Greenwich, are almost completely submerged now, whereas Dana and Prescott are mostly above water, but they are part of that larger watershed. Um, Dana is the oldest, founded in 1696. Um, the town common of Dana is completely above water. It's one of the most popular hiking trails that are there now, so you can actually hike out there. Most of the, the houses are gone, but they're cellar holes, many of which are, you know, rubble stone foundations that date back to the colonial times, are still there. Um, it was placed on the National Register in 2013, um, and there's actually a commemorative plaque there as well now. Um, Enfield was the largest of the four towns, um, and it's the one that survived the longest, too, in terms of things like that. Um, incorporated in 1816, um, the headquarters for the project was in the Enfield Town Hall, and that was actually the last building to go. It was not demolished until 1940. Um, Enfield, uh, and Greenwich both were stops on the, um, Boston and Al Albany Railroad, um, the Athol branch of that. So, I mean, these were booming little towns. Uh, like I said, Enfield also had the largest population. Um, Greenwich, which was actually originally called Quabbin. If you're wondering what the word Quabbin is, it's actually a Nipmunk Indian word, uh, which means the meeting place of many waters. Appropriate. So Greenwich was originally known as Quabbin, founded in 1739. Uh, this one, I believe the entire town is now underwater. It was... In terms of land, it was kind of on the lowest point of the valley. Um, lastly, Prescott. Uh, Prescott also is mostly above water. Prescott, 
what's called the Prescott Peninsula now um, was the high ground. Um, it was named after Colonel William Prescott, which if you grew up in New England, you probably remember he was the commander of the American forces at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Um, that in 1822, in terms of population, it was the smallest. Um, it only had about 300 people, 250, 300 people at its peak, which was in the 19th century. Um, at the time it was disincorporated, there were 18 residents. So it was, it was a small town. Um, the Prescott Peninsula, again, is mostly above water. Once a year, the Swift River Valley Historical Society, which is a historical society dedicated just to the four towns, does what they call a pilgrimage out there. I went on the pilgrimage in probably 2012. Um, I was the youngest person on the minibus by at least 40 years. Um, the majority of people are former residents. And when you think about the fact that the towns were disincorporated in 1938, most of these people are in their 90s, and they were children when they left. Um, I mean, for perspective, my, my grandmother is going to be 90 this year. She would have been eight years old when this happened. Um, so <laughs> it was interesting, um, definitely for me, because I had read about the history of the towns and I really wanted to see it. And the Prescott Peninsula, because it is a peninsula, um, is very heavily guarded and protected, particularly since the terrorist attacks in September 11th, 2001, um, because they want to protect a major water supply. Most of these reservoirs are no-fly zones. They're trying to protect some sort of biological weapon that could impact public water supply. So you can't go out in the Prescott Peninsula except for this one trip. You cannot hike out to that portion around the Quabbin. You can still see cellar holes. You can still see um, certain landscape features, you know, stone walls, things like that. But again, no, none of the buildings remain. Um... Prescott's a really interesting one, just to give you kind of like an idea about these towns. Uh, Prescott was actually where Shays' Rebellion was planned. And if you don't remember that from American history, Shays' Rebellion was really, um, it happened in 1787, was planned by Daniel Shays, um, who lived in like Prescott, New Pelham, which is sort of the next town over. The site of his house is gone. Um, it was gone before they started tearing things down. I think it burned down in the 20s. Um, but that's still above water. But um, the Conkey Tavern, which the site of that is now below water, was where they planned this rebellion. And this rebellion, essentially post-American Revolution, Shays believed that there was unfair taxation and he and about 4,000 of his followers decided to attack the local Springfield armory and they planned to use the weapons to overthrow the government um in an almost laughable early American fluke there were no there were no troops that the federal government could send so the Massachusetts militia actually put down the rebellion but a lot of people argue that this was the step that led to the Constitution, um, because at that point, America was being governed by the Articles of Confederation. This was what pushed them to you know, reconsider that and put together, you know, the final product that would be the laws for the United States um, and ratify it. You don't really need to know all that history, but I just put it forth and say that like, this is a significant enough event that it makes most American history books, and it happened in one of these towns. 
So you can imagine that there is probably a significant amount of history contained within the landscape of these towns that has been lost because of this particular project. All in total, um, about 2,500 people were displaced, moved to different towns. Most of them moved to the surrounding communities, um, towns like Ware, New Pelham, Belchertown, um, which all still exist. Um, six churches, 13 schools, 60 summer camps. That gives you an idea of kind of like what the economy of this area was based on. It was a very big kind of like summer playground where people would go to get away from the heat. There were 60 summer camps there. Um, and surprisingly, 14 mills and factories, because remember, this was along a major river. Um, interestingly enough, I can remember somebody telling me that one of the, a lot of them were actually straw factories. They made things like straw hats. Um, but another big thing that was made here because it was close to the textile industry was that they made cotton and they actually um, made tampons and sanitary napkins. One of the, the early factories that made those was in this area, which I had not known before. So all of these towns were disincorporated on the same day, um, April 28th, 1938, and I love it. You can actually see pictures. The night before, on April 27th, there was a farewell ball held at the Enfield Town Hall, which was that last remaining building that was used as the headquarters for the project before it was raised two years later, um, with free beer and people celebrating and, you know, having one last hurrah. So that is the brief history of the Quabbin Reservoir, what happened? Um, the reservoir wouldn't be full until 1946, so it would take an, almost another 10 years to completely fill the reservoir um, because it's not like the water just gushes in one day. Now, there's one thing I have not mentioned, and that is cemeteries. So in total, and I'm going to mention something here because longtime listeners probably remember, but I know I don't mention it all the time, in New England, there is a tradition often, particularly in rural areas, of very localized cemeteries. You have the Puritan tradition of having a common cemetery, usually on the town common in the center. Um, and all of this goes back to the, the first three episodes of the three or four episodes of the podcast if you want to listen to the general history of American cemeteries. But also you have a lot of frontier graves, which are small you know, frontier, pioneer, whatever you want to call them, family cemeteries. So within the area that would be flooded for the Quabbin, you have a total of 7,613 graves moved, which is a lot. But keep in mind that these are very old settlements, some of them going back at this point almost 400 years. There are 34 cemeteries that comprise those graves. That's a lot of cemeteries to move, even if you consider that many of them are family cemeteries that are small in nature. It is my understanding, and I have seen posts about it, um, one of the teachers I used to work with knew a gentleman who had hiked the Quabbin extensively, and he actually wrote a book about it. And uh, my understanding is that, that there was one individual grave that was missed. It's still there. People kind of don't talk about it. It's far above the water it's in the woods and so they've kind of like not said anything about it it just stays where it is but for the most part they were all moved and of those graves 6,601 of them were moved to Quabbin Park Cemetery 
So on 82 acres of former farmland in um, the town of Ware, which if you go to the main entrance, again, of Quabbin, where the visitor center is, the cemetery is right there on Route 9. It's been probably eight or nine years since I've been there, but I do remember where it is. It's right there, kind of front and center. You cannot miss it. So they essentially established one cemetery. Now, I bring this up because it's a little bit different from what we talked about last week with the TBA, where you could choose where you wanted your graves to go. Now, in this case, you did not have to go to Quabbin Park. You were automatically guaranteed both to move the existing graves free of charge to Quabbin Park and... So say you had bought a family plot that had eight spaces and you only used one. At Quabbin Park, you would also have seven open spaces that you could use. So they also guaranteed that any unused lots that you had in the old cemetery would be transferred over. They also would transport and move the body for free if you chose to go to another cemetery. But there you did have to buy the plot yourself. So... Some similarities to the TVA, but this is one of the few where I have seen that an entire cemetery was established, and a large cemetery. I mean, 82 acres is not a small cemetery. It's larger than many of the original rural cemeteries were. And I will say, it is a lovely cemetery. I have been there. There's a little headquarters, you know, kind of like grave-finding building when you come in. They also moved all of the war memorials so you know civil war cannons you know revolutionary war all of that stuff from all of the towns was moved to sort of a central location right outside of that building where they are all now this to me was really interesting like i said because generally they will either move to one cemetery and buy just a mass plot and sometimes do not move the headstones um we see that a lot um something along the lines of monument cemetery in philadelphia or the same thing happened in many of the San Francisco cemeteries. Here, they are moving both monuments, bodies, and they are establishing their own cemetery as opposed to buying something in just a local newer cemetery. Which I think is pretty cool. And I like it a lot. And that's why I'm completely on board with this idea. They also made an effort to make it a place of community. So when you drive in, there are two pillars, and the pillars are actually made of stones taken from the foundation of every church in the valley from the disincorporated towns. So they were able to reuse it, kind of solidify that sense of community, say, you know, even though the churches are no longer there, we brought the churches with us. And on those pillars, there are bronze plaques marking each of the 34 different cemeteries. That's pretty cool. Now, all of this movement happened basically over the stretch of two years early in the project. So they moved these even before they took a lot of the houses. Um, Mainly, I think, because they felt like it was a big undertaking and they knew it was going to take some time. So 1931, 1932 is when the majority of this action happens. And... As always, you can't always get in touch with every family. And I think if they couldn't get in touch with the family, they did make the decision and moved it themselves. But obviously not every family signs off at the same time. Some take longer. Some might not be sure what they want to do. 
this is where things go a little off the rails with me because what they did was they moved bodies for the most part at the same time from the same cemetery but they didn't necessarily end up in my mind the way that it should have been created was that if you had you know the dana town cemetery the dana common cemetery they should have picked a piece of land that was the same size as that cemetery and moved the bodies and put them back obviously not in c2 but together in the same order, in the same organization. And if they chose not to have their body moved there, and if the family chose to have it moved to another cemetery, maybe have placed a cenotaph. Because that way, you get the impression of what the original cemetery looked like. And all of the burials there were together. Because as this happened, they moved bodies in the order that people signed off on it. So things ended up getting mixed up and you, even though you might have them sort of in the same geographic location, it's not any kind of representation of what the original cemetery was. Now, you might say, all right, you're splitting hairs here. I mean, this, the graves got moved. They were moved in a responsible and respectful way. What's the big deal? And this is where I'm going to make an argument about context. That's really all I need to say about it because I think that Quabbin Park did do a very good job. It is still an active cemetery. Um, In order to be buried there now, not just anybody can be buried there, you either have to be a former resident, which obviously some former residents are still alive, their direct descendant, so, you know, if you were the child of a former resident of the four towns, or, I think this is pretty cool, it's also open to employees and former employees of the Department of Conservation and Recreation who run the Quabbin Park Reservoir service area. Um, I'm sure probably Metropolitan Water and the people who worked on those things too, if they want to be buried there, I think they would probably be grandfathered in as well. Um, So I'm not trying to pick on Quabbin Park in particular, but I think in an age when cemeteries are still being moved, it's something to think about. And I will confess that this whole thing was born out of me watching a movie and it's a movie most of you have probably seen um it's no secret as much as I might refuse to do the ghost and haunted nonsense on this podcast I do love a good horror movie very much so um and I recently rewatched Poltergeist and the movie came out you know almost 40 years ago so I hopefully I'm not ruining anything for anybody but there is a scene in the movie where Craig T. Nelson, who is the father of the family, he is a sales representative for this new subdivision. And he is with his boss. And his boss drives him up to the top of a hill and says to him, you know, this would be a great location for a bay window. What do you think? And he looks down and he's got the whole valley. It's it's a million dollar view. And he says, well, he's like, sure, it's a great view. He's like, but there's no house here. And he says, well, we're about to break ground on a new phase of our housing development project. And, you know, you're such a good employee. We want to give you a house up here. And he said, well, the problem is there's not much room for a pool. And you can see the whole time he's been leaning against a fence. And all of a sudden they pull back and you realize that the fence is on the edge of a cemetery. And it's not a real cemetery. It's a matte painting of a cemetery. But 
it's an accurate representation because historically cemeteries would have been built on high ground and often the particularly in the 19th century they were built on these picturesque views we've talked a lot about the rural cemetery movement and them you know conforming to the landscape and having curvilinear roads and having the hills and the vales and that being part of the aesthetic of the cemetery and so even though that this is a fake cemetery that exists only in a mat artist's mind it's not unreasonable that a cemetery could be located in a place like that. And so it was something that kind of got in my mind. And then he talks about, and he's like, well, you know, we're just, he's like, we're going to move him to the Memorial Park. It's only five more minutes away. People want to visit their relatives. They can easily visit them there. What's the big deal about driving five minutes away? And of course, my automatic reaction was, well, it's a very big deal because they picked this location for the exact same reason that you want to build a house and put a bay window there. That that was part of the aesthetic, that the location had something to do with it. Also, for safety reasons, that cemetery was placed outside of town in a place that it wouldn't affect the groundwater supply, in a place that it wouldn't be overtaken by, say, I don't know, residential housing. All of these things that for somebody who is a cemetery podcaster and somebody who studied cemetery history, to me, it makes a very big deal. And granted, I'm not going to read too deeply into Poltergeist. Obviously, you know how that movie ends, and I think it's a great vindication for the cemetery podcasters and taphophiles of the world. Um, but I'll let you watch the movie for yourself to, to see how that ends up. Um, but... That to me is a perfect example of why context matters, because a lot of what we can understand about that cemetery has to do with its location, with the physical landscape. And as an architectural historian, almost every paper I have written, almost all the research that I have written has had to do with cultural landscape how we can look at a place and we can read the landscape and we can use the physical structures and often the augmentation of the natural landscape that people have made to understand more about history and how the relationship between things can tell us about a person's culture, can tell us about their values, can tell us about their mores. Um, it's what my thesis was on. It was about how the cultural landscape created by a cemetery can be read, how a cemetery created a neighborhood, how the cemetery put in place the infrastructure needed to create that neighborhood, to create a streetcar suburb, to put in the infrastructure that made it desirable. You know, a boulevard, which was the trendiest type of road at the time, this picturesque parkland, open green space, all of these things were due to the cemetery. And that cultural landscape that exists in the neighborhood of Blackstone in Providence, Rhode Island, it's not by accident. It was created by Swan Point Cemetery. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about cultural landscape. And believe me, cemeteries are cultural landscapes, 100%. Because not just the initial design but even the evolution of a cemetery over time, and cemeteries do change, certainly, is very important to understand. So I broke down 10 different reasons why context is important. So bear with me. I'm going to go through all 10, and I'm going to try to give you some examples. And it's something that I want you to think about the next time you visit a cemetery, what you can see, what you can understand about it. 
based on this. And this kind of idea came to me because when I was a TA in graduate school, we used to do walking tours with the kids where we would walk through a neighborhood and you could tell certain things about it just based on the landscape. Uh, And I had a professor who he used to do tours called Reading the City, where he would go to a city where he had never been before, where he didn't know anything about it, and he would just read the physical landscape of buildings, of roads. Oh, a streetcar used to run through here. That big, important building is on that corner because you can still see the streetcar tracks, which are underneath the road today. It doesn't run here anymore, but that's why that building was in that location. And a perfect example of this, um, Laurel Grove South Cemetery in Savannah, um, if you go to Laurel Grove today, the largest, most impressive, probably most expensive monument in Laurel Grove South appears to be tucked away in a really like the very corner of the cemetery and it's kind of like well why is such an important monument in such a corner like that well that's because it wasn't originally a corner where the entrance to the cemetery is on Colic Street today is not where the entrance always was the entrance was originally further down and the entrance originally ran right by that big beautiful monument whereas Prior to that, you know, when the two cemeteries, and I think I've talked about this a little bit, um, Laurel Grove North, which was the white cemetery, and Laurel Grove South, which is the black cemetery, were originally one. In the 1960s, when I-16 was built, it cut through the middle and it separated the two. So when I-16 was built, they moved the entrance further down Colic Street. Again, if you don't know that about the landscape, it doesn't make sense. But it tells you something about how the cemetery has changed and evolved over time. So that, that's a perfect one right off the top of my head. So in no particular order. First of all, familial relationships. This one might seem obvious because we are familiar with family plots. And obviously in older cemeteries, so in rural cemeteries, you have big grand family plots. It's something that does evolve. It evolves over time from, you know, the rural cemetery where you might have an individual grand monument for each person. You know, you might have an obelisk for one person, a statue for another, an urn for another, so on and so forth. You know, lambs for children. Then that transitions as you go into the lawn park style, which is popularized at Spring Grove in Cincinnati, where you transition over to a central family monument whatever it might be, an urn, an obelisk, et cetera, et cetera, with identical individual markers for the family. So that's certainly a a trend. And I will talk a little bit more about changing design and stylistic trends next. But also wider familial relationships. So think about older cemeteries where you might have interrelated families. Um, so you might go to, and I, I, I encounter small family cemeteries like this all the time, where you'll see three names, you know, the Holcomb Smith Taylor Cemetery. And these were all families that if you look at the names, they are all married and interrelated. They might not all have the same last name, but they were all connected. So being able to trace familial relationships... And I can say this, I was at a cemetery in Louisville, Georgia. And this was clearly something where the family, I don't know if they had bought the plots at different times, 
but you could see that this was a family that the older family plot was on one side of the road and the newer family plot was on the other. And the question was, well, was that road, which it, it was just a little dirt road through the middle of the cemetery, had that road always been there? Did they originally own two contiguous plots or did they fill up one plot and they wind another and the closest one that was available was across the road? So all of these things are things that you can trace. And if you remove that landscape and if they were to move to a new cemetery, so say they had to dig up all the bodies, move them to a new cemetery, they would probably just buy one plot. And so you would no longer have that story of the family that existed on both sides of the road. Changing design and stylistic trends. This is a big one that you see in old cemeteries. Cemeteries that change over time. So I mentioned Spring Grove in Cincinnati a minute ago. That, keep in mind, was originally a rural cemetery. And it was a failing rural cemetery. It was one that was not doing particularly well. And was saved by Adolf Strach, who came over um, from Prussia. And he redesigned how it was set up and he put in lakes and different features which made it more attractive so there are still sections that are the older rural cemetery style whereas then things evolve um, the north burial ground in providence this is a wonderful example of it because there are sections that are goat date back to the colonial times you have very significant early burials there but you also have sections where there's a grand receiving vault that are very high-style Victorian. You also have fraternal organizations. There's an elk section there. Um, and also flat memorial-style markers. So you can see the evolution of trends. And again, if you were to move things and you might have families that have multiple-style grave markers, it would not be as evident because they'd all be clustered together. Uh, and that's one of my biggest pet peeves in movies is movies love to mix together different styles where you will have um, a tympanum death's head monument from the 1620s right next to a Victorian angel. No, that never happens. Virtually never happens. The cemetery will have grown and moved, particularly because at the 1620s mark, you were not buying family plots. That was not the way that the Puritan era did things. Um, it's obviously a set, but hocus pocus. People ask me all the time, they're like, yeah, that's a real cemetery. No, that's not a real cemetery. Not at all. Thirdly, sales strategies. Now, this is something that I have mainly focused on with Memorial Park style cemeteries. Remember, all the markers are identical, flat, either granite or bronze, set flush with the ground. People love them. Makes it really easy to mow the grass. But in those cemeteries, remember that they chose central features, often ones that were pretty, I don't know if I would say exactly standardized, but they're pretty uniform from different tradition to different tradition. And, you know, you see Thorvaldson's Christos. You see the praying hands. A lot of these features are very, very similar. Last Supper mosaics. And the closer you were to the feature, the more expensive the gravesite would be. And this is not a new idea because going back to medieval times, if you were going to be buried in a churchyard, the premium land was closer to the church. The further away from the church, it was less desirable. Even if burial within a church, the closer you were to the altar, the more expensive and the more premium and the more important a person you were. 
if everyone is moved and people are moved to a new cemetery, that's something that absolutely is going to be lost particularly if it's a type of cemetery that is different. And a lot of times when these Victorian cemeteries are moved, they're moved to a Memorial Park-style cemetery where it's just an open, flat piece of land. So it's a completely different landscape. All of the features that really characterize a rural cemetery, they just don't exist in a Memorial Park. So all of that context and all of the visual feeling is completely gone. Population growth. Uh, Population growth is something that definitely can be seen in cemeteries. The explosion of cemeteries that happens in the 1840s is all a result of the Industrial Revolution. So cemeteries are great places to see population growth. Immigration. I know that we have talked about Calvary Cemetery in Queens, which is the largest cemetery in the United States, um, has four different sections. Um, The majority of the deaths that occurred there were during epidemics in New York City of Irish, who were all recent immigrants in the 1840s following the Irish potato famine. Cemeteries are good places to look at how demographics change and how the demographics of some place like New York, which is founded by Dutch Protestants, how in the 1840s you have a completely new demographic and suddenly Catholics are outstripping and becoming the largest group. Um, So, you know, Population growth and the need for new cemeteries is one thing, but also you can see demographic and ethnic changes, um, as well as changes in values. So this is technically number five, but these two overlap, so I'm going to tie them together. So demographic changes in terms of religion, but also in the rise of secularism. You know, you definitely can see a push towards non-denominational or non-secretarian cemeteries with the rural cemetery movement. Um, Remember, it goes along with that second great awakening, a very different feeling in terms of religion. You can also see um, when a new ethnic group moves in. I can remember that the little cemetery that was near me when I lived in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, Arlington, which I know I've talked about before, um, there was a growing Asian population. And so there was a whole section of the cemetery that was now characterized by black granite markers with gold lettering that showed this increased population. And these are very different from the original people who were being buried there. Likewise, different changes in terms of just diversification, needing to maybe have different sections, break things down, have separate gates if you're going to have a Jewish section. All of these things are part of the landscape. And so the question is, you know, like when you move a cemetery, do you keep up those sections? Do you defer to the church to make those decisions? Also, it's something that in cities, often you will have cemeteries that have sections which are purchased. Um, I know that when we talked about the Grove Street Burial Ground in New Haven, we mentioned this like Yale University has a plot there. There's a stranger's ground there. All of those things. Again, Do you keep that context if you move a cemetery? All of those are important things to keep in mind. Number six, this one should be obvious, epidemics and natural disasters. So obviously I talked about the 1918 epidemic um, and the New York Times ran a huge article on this about why are there no monuments to the 1918 epidemic? And if you know how to read cemeteries and if you listen to the presentation that I did for the Association for Gravestone Studies, 
you can find them. They're very obviously there. Uh, and I know I talked about, um, you know, even the dimension that it got on the HBO TV show, um, which I'm blanking on the name now, but when they're walking through a cemetery and she says, oh, he's like, oh, they died within a week of each other. It must have been from heartbreak. And she said, no, they died in 1818. They died of the Spanish flu. I know that where I grew up, um, the Great New England hurricane of 1938 was a particularly devastating storm. You can see a lot of 1938 burials, even though a lot of the people were swept out to sea, but same thing down in Galveston after 1906. All of those things, if you go down to the Florida Keys, you can see a lot of memorials. Um, I think there's one, a big one in Marathon, on Marathon Key. All of these can be shown in cemeteries. And again, if you have a particular group that's heavily impacted by something like that, if you remove that from context and if they're being moved, then you no longer can look at that and say, hey, there's a trend here. I see that something happened here. I don't know if it was an epidemic. I don't know if it was a family. A lot of that context is lost if individual families are move choosing to move them to different cemeteries or they're moved at different times. So those groupings are lost. Social structure, the same way. That the majority of cemeteries have a pauper section, a stranger section, a potter's field, whatever they call it, which is going to be in a different place than the wealthy folks. They're going to be on the top of the hill versus the bottom of the hill. Or, you know, are there certain families that try to group together? Do you want to be near the entrance? Do you want to be near a certain feature? Also, does it change over time? You know, so if you have a cemetery, so um, Oak Hill Cemetery in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, I visited there, and I know I posted a couple pictures. I know I posted a, a zinky from there because you guys love your white bronze. Um, so Woonsocket was a boom town in the 19th century. Lots of mills, very, very wealthy, but today has fallen on qu quite hard times. And the cemetery reflects this. You see these grand, just amazing monuments there. But you can also see that it is mostly abandoned. It's definitely overrun. It's heavily vandalized. And that's because there has been a change in the status of that particular place. So social structure, not just in the landscape, but also in how the landscape has changed. And I know that almost every city in America has a cemetery like this where either the neighborhood around it has declined, something like Mount Moriah in Philadelphia, all of these things. Number eight, climate change. This is something that I not necessarily would always think about, but is one I think that's important. So the one that comes to mind first is obviously certain places are losing tree cover. Um, there are certain trees, so down in Savannah, I know that this is a big issue with live oaks. Live oaks have a lifespan about 150 years. So their cemeteries which were opened in the 1840s, well, those trees are coming to the end of their life cycle now. So if they are not replanted, then you're losing tree cover. Now, tree cover, particularly in the rural cemetery movement, is a vital aspect of that. So your landscape is changing and it's no longer there. Are you planting native species? What happens if a species gets a particular disease? Dutch elm is obviously the classic example. But, you know, I often wonder, is there a cemetery that was completely devastated by Dutch elm? I'm sure there was. 
I know that I went to the University of Rhode Island and the quadrangle, you could see that the trees were relatively young compared to lots of other parts of campus. And it's because the quad was originally surrounded by Dutch elms. Also, the landscape often, and if you don't know how to read it, there are certain plants. So I know holly, for example, is very common. Yucca is another one that you see in black cemeteries. So if you were to move them, these plants, which have very special associations for the ethnic group, and you don't move them with them, you're losing part of the context. Um, the same way, you know, that you might go to a cemetery and you see grave goods that don't make sense to you. Again, something you very frequently see in black cemeteries is eggplants, which are left um, off of this fertility offerings. Um, and I remember the first time I saw them, I was like, whoa, I had heard about this, but I had never seen them before. All of those things are part of the landscape, the same way that any kind of grave goods are. So the conch shell for the Gullah Geechee people or stones um, placed in a Jewish cemetery. The landscape often plays a role in what that is. And especially for these older cemeteries, which are rural cemeteries or even going back earlier to colonial cemeteries all of those features like colonial cemeteries did not have those plantings so that's a very important distinction that sometimes if you go to a colonial cemetery and you look at the trees there they are not original to that cemetery it was an open land on a town common and these trees were planted later maybe because they were trying to accommodate a later trend which looked at a different type of cemetery landscape um, number nine, the larger social landscape. And I can only think of one really good example of this. And I'm sorry, again, it's the cemetery I did my thesis on. Swan Point Cemetery in the 1930s took a portion of their unused land and turned it into gardens to grow food for people who are out of work in the Great Depression. Now, I am positive that there are other examples and things that I probably do not know of. But cemeteries as open land, how are they part of the changing social landscape? And you can argue even that the removal of cemeteries speaks to the changing social landscape. So, for example, Monument Cemetery in Philadelphia, which I already mentioned, is now a portion of Temple's campus. Um, there is a sports field there. There are parking lots there. Does that show both the growth of the school and the power of the school? It shows changing social attitudes towards cemeteries like we saw in San Francisco. It shows changing in the rise and fall of neighborhoods like I already discussed. There are things in the social landscape, and I think that you can probably argue that cemeteries in many cases have also contributed to like the wider culture. Um, obviously looking at Forest Lawn out in Glendale. This is the perfect example about how they changed the landscape in terms of what people saw. And that's the reason that they now have, what, five or six different locations. Um, but there is a reason that Walt Disney was such a good friend of the founders of Forest Lawn um, because the same idea that he had in the establishment of Disneyland and things like that. That is a way of changing how people use landscape. The same way that rural cemeteries were part of the social landscape of rapidly industrializing cities needing green space. So before there were parks, there were rural cemeteries. All of these things tell us something about history 
that we can read just by the existence of them. And if you remove them, that removes a vital part of the story. Lastly, number 10, um, context and cemetery can tell us about the cemetery governance and financial issues. So cemetery governance, a lot of times this has to do with, you know, different leadership changes their priorities, or perhaps they changed from a board of directors to a superintendent. Different changes, different things stylistically. Um, if you read through the you know, meeting minutes, particularly of the rural cemeteries, you can see a lot of this. And these folks were often very savvy businessmen, and they knew exactly what they were doing. So they were reading trends. They were tapping into this. They were part of groups of cemetery superintendents, and they were trying to stay on what was cutting edge. So a lot of times the landscape, you can see very stark differences based on when a new person took over. Again, something that could very easily be lost. The same thing with financial issues. Um, I see this in a lot of cemeteries that have turnover, um, particularly memorial parks, where there's a memorial park not too far from Atlanta, which I surveyed, and they have a sunken, I think it's, I can't remember if it's a columbarium and mausoleum or if it's just a columbarium. I can't remember now, but it's sunken. It's in the shape of a cross, and you can definitely see that the quality of the lettering over time has declined and there are probably four different styles of lettering and you could tell that every time somebody new took over governance of the cemetery they changed what type of lettering they used and so there's an inconsistency in materials and you can even see like the marble is a little bit crappier on some than others all of these things are parts of the landscape that you can read if you know what you're looking for and i'm sure that there are things that you probably can notice and cemeteries all the time you can see that new immigrant populations almost exclusively they get buried along the fringes of the cemetery and that comes in waves so if you had a wave of hungarian immigrants followed by a wave of italian immigrants followed by a wave of whatever there are layers and all of those things are vital to the patterns that emerge so starting with the question of the justification of moving cemeteries isn't enough but the fact that when cemeteries are moved you need to do it in a responsible way and you need to do it in a way that doesn't erase the history that exists and I know that this is all very well and good to say in retrospect but I think that because cemetery removals continue to happen these are things that need to be taken into account I would love to say that it's enough that we're moving them and we're making sure that we do it in a responsible way and we're doing it in accordance with the family's wishes, but also think about what that cemetery represents aside from just the burials, but also as part of the cultural landscape. As always, thank you so much for your ratings and reviews. Um, Please, it does help me be much more visible. I am thinking about going in and changing uh, some of my information because if you search cemeteries, I actually don't come up um, because cemetery is not in my title. Um, so I'm thinking I might change it to Tomb of the View colon a cemetery podcast. Um, but the more ratings and reviews I have, the much more visible I am on all search platforms, whether you use uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera. Um, also... Please follow along um, on Instagram, tomb period with period, a period view. 
Facebook, Tune With A View podcast. I know I'm terrible about Facebook. I just never go on there and I tend to forget about it. I know, I'm a bum. Um, website, www.tunewithaview.weebly.com. And if you want to get a hold of me by email, which I would love some topic suggestions, I have planned out currently through November and I have one or two weeks that are still up for grabs. Um, so if there's a topic that you want to hear about, please share tunewithaviewpodcast at gmail.com got some exciting stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I do thank you for your patience. I know that this is coming out a day late. Uh, I ended up with some malware on my computer, so I was not able to record uh, earlier this week, but I finally got that figured out. So I do appreciate your patience because I know it did not come out on Friday as planned. Thank you for everything. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tune With A View.